Welcome to episode one of a brand new series called The House Builders Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Close Brothers Property Finance and Showhouse Magazine. And during the series, we'll be covering all the key themes and topics across the house building industry. My name is Rupert Bates. I am editorial director of Showhouse Magazine, the leading trade title for UK house builders, and the new build platform, whathouse.com. I'm delighted for our very first podcast, entitled Building for the Future, to introduce our guests today. First of all, we have Paul DePino. Paul has over 25 years' experience in the property industry, previously as an agent, developer, investor, and now is the Chief Innovation Officer of Joseph Homes. We also have Bradley Gold. Bradley started Gold Developments alongside his father in 1996, since when they have been building much-loved and award-winning homes, including their passive eco-home scheme in Faversham, Kent, which was a gold winner at the Watt House Awards last year for Best Sustainable Development. And finally, we have Dan Joyce. Dan is a long-standing member of the Close Brothers Property Finance team, starting as a lending assistant in 2000, working his way up whilst growing a substantial residential lending portfolio, and was promoted to director in 2015. Dan is an advocate for supporting the next generation of SME house builders in building homes of the future. So it's fantastic to welcome you all, gentlemen, and a big thank you to Close Brothers Property Finance for hosting us in your fantastically renovated offices. So, Paul, obviously the title of the podcast, Building for the Future, um, I don't want to condemn the entire industry, but we're not very good at building for the future, are we? Um, We tend to be reactive rather than proactive, and we now talk about modern methods of construction. But what does that mean to you? What does building for the future mean? Well, I'm, I'm personally really excited about this because I think the industry is is looking forward much more than it ever has. As you look around the world, there's some really exciting things happening. There are companies printing homes in America that I've been following, which is really exciting. There are folding concepts coming out. There's obviously the uh, volumetric approach of building an entire home in a factory. Uh, we're not necessarily a fan of that. And modern methods of construction, this tagline, covers a whole remit of things from printing one component in a factory to building the whole home and everything in between. So Joseph Homes is a business. We don't necessarily think that building a, an entire home and putting it on a truck and shipping a lot of air necessarily makes sense. We're looking very much more into a sub-component assembly model where all of the components are built off-site, so bathroom pods, utility pods, kitchens, and brought together on-site. And that gives much more flexibility uh, for our products, and we think is perhaps a more flexible approach to use. I'm out talking to lots of people about this. We're seeing more and more people, almost everyone, is having to look at this and react to it now, uh, which is fantastic. And I think, therefore, we will see huge, huge change over the next five to 10 years. One small anecdotal thing that I picked up on recently and is a consequence of the pandemic, it's really hard to get labor. There's not many bricklayers around. Apparently to produce brick slips, what happens at the moment is a brick gets cut into three, they throw the middle bit around. You know, people are starting, innovation is starting to happen because people are starting to think that can't make sense. Let's, how can we do that in a factory in the dry and get a, a, a really high quality product 
And as much as anything, people like us, we're asking our supply chain for this. We're really challenging them now about how products being made, what's its carbon content, you know, how much embodied carbon is in that product. You know, we've got net zero carpet and towel suppliers now, which is fantastic. That data just wasn't there a few years ago. So I'm uh, a sleepy construction industry, I think, is finally waking up and we're going to see huge change. And we'll look back and, you know, it'll be remarkable how far that's moved. And Bradley, uh, we, we love an acronym, don't we? Um, MMC, uh, Modern Methods of Construction, what does it mean to you as a developer? And do you think, crucially, that that translates to the to the consumer? Do they have any clue what this supposed sort of revolution is? Uh, well, I think answering the second question first, I think the consumer does need a lot of educating in this field. I think... Um, at the end of the day, they are just looking at the finished product and how much does it cost? Can they afford it? it the economics are a massive, a massive factor in, the, in this whole debate. I mean, in terms of the, the modern methods of construction, it seems to me to mean different things to different people. It's everything from timber frame to, as um, Paul mentioned, you know, 3D laser built properties. It's a, it's a huge topic. There's a certain inevitability about the movement towards modern methods. But my view is that it's, it's very much going to be economics driven. It, it can only work if it, if it is saving, saving cost. As far as the consumer is concerned, they walk into a house. Is it in the right location? Does it have enough space for the family? And, and what does it look and feel like? Um, and I don't think the modern methods of construction really change that very much. And I think that's probably why properties have have not incorporated these new revolutionary ideas because we are focusing on what the consumer is looking at rather than the production methods. In that sense, it should really be more evolution rather than revolution, shouldn't it? We've got Mark Farmer, who's a MMC champion uh, for the government, and he's written fascinating papers on it. But it's this sort of modernise or die rhetoric I have some issues with. I mean, do you think, do you think maybe that's a bit dangerous? Um, it, it sort of, it sort of lumps all the cards on the future, whereas presumably a hybrid model, um, where there is still room for traditional, um, is is the better route forward. If you add on all the key ingredients of eco homes and passive homes, um, for example, when you Bradley, when you set out with the Faversham scheme, was it? Was it very much with the intention we're going to make this a mould-breaking, sustainable scheme? Was that what you set out to achieve, really, from the from the word go? There were a, a number of factors involved in us making the, the decision to go. It was it was a, a very big and difficult decision to make. It's never comfortable being at the cutting edge, as it were. But you know, as as a company, we are obviously very conscious of the environment and trying to improve things and climate change and all those you know big headline issues. So yes, in, in, in all our properties, we are looking at ways of making them more eco-friendly. The passive house scheme was effectively the, the pinnacle as, as we saw it. So when a site came along where the, the economics stacked up and we could actually um, consider building it as a passive house scheme, we jumped at the opportunity. But the other factor that was very much in our minds was, you know, this gets us ahead of the curve. It's my belief that, you know, in five years, 10 years time, all homes are going to be built to, if not a passive house standard, then something very similar. And, you know, if we can get ahead of the game and start learning about the pitfalls and the advantages, 
of of building to those um, eco standards, then you know that can only be good for our business and and our reputation going forward. So those were the the motivating factors behind it. We just had to wait until the right site came along that you know the economics stacked up because. There is a cost element in, in all these uh, innovations. And talking of economics stacking up, um, Dan, obviously Close Brothers, hugely supportive, particularly of SME house builders who, who are being very innovative in the main. But presumably that comes with risks attached. Um, is there almost like a modern method of lending to go alongside this movement? Bradley's point is it generally comes down to the economics. As a, as a lender, we're, we're always looking at what the demand for the for the ultimate product is. So, you know, if the economics work, we can see that there's sufficient demand for the product, and you know, we we ultimately have to look at whether the the potential buyer can be supported by the mortgage in the industry. So, there's there's other elements to this move, moving forward. Then then we're obviously we'll be keen to support those who want to be innovative in in the industry. And I think when we look forward to sort of 2025 and new home standards and, you know, the removal of fossil fuels, et cetera, through the house building industry, that is going to be a time, or I mean, we're seeing it already, when real progression will be made within the industry. And I think everyone will have to get used to that and it will be an expectation for all developers moving forward. Bradley, a key thing, obviously, in all this, there is the the aesthetic of of a new home, isn't it? And and, and design and, and the look and feel. I think it was only, I think last weekend, the big Telegraph headline, why are new builds so ugly? Which I thought was a bit harsh. <laughs> they obviously hadn't seen the Watt House Award winners, obviously. But, um, you know, but it... But, or the evening standard. Or the evening standard, the second best new homes uh, accolades in the industry. <laughs> um, but yeah, in, in that sense, again, it comes back to that consumer, isn't it? And, and we haven't even mentioned the P word, the you know, planning word. word, word. Where, where, where does that sit? Again, surely it's incumbent on local authorities and, and plan, maybe they are doing this, I'm not sure, in terms of actually helping you by you know, the, the fact that you passive houses, the whole energy efficiency. Does that, does that help get through the planning process or is planning as it's always been? Not that we've found, no. It's a simple answer. I think you know, the, the planners as always, are going to have input into, into what the development looks like in a very general term. You know, they, they'll choose the, the materials and, and so on and so forth. But they still look at it very much as a tick box exercise. They're not really swayed by the fact that you've got a, a cutting edge, really attractive design. The, the planning process is quite a blunt instrument. I, I think it's up to the, the house builders and the developers to, to actually come up with you know, the, the schemes that are attractive. You know, we always believe that the design has got to be right for the customer to be interested in buying the house. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very much at the forefront of our developments. And, you know, whether that's a, a traditional design or a, a something more modern and, and daring like Vavisham, um, Fairbrook Grove, it is, you know, it's a commercial judgment again. It's got to be the right design for the right location. And Dan, from from your point of view, I mean, there's Bradley's use of the word daring. Um, that must make a, a banker flinch, right? But no, in all seriousness, um, I think some very well-respected property journalists uh, once called Close Brothers Property Finance bankers in hard hats. And it's true, as a, as a business, you very much get your boots dirty, don't you? And and you must look at an awful lot of house building schemes. Do you do you often have that 
almost a dilemma. You think, yeah, this is great. This is daring. This is bold. This is what we need. But unfortunately, it doesn't fit your lending criteria or as or there is too much risk attached. Does that cause a slight dilemma in your mind? It does. I mean, it's a fair observation. You know, we've all seen and, and had opportunities land on our desk that are creative, I would say, from an aesthetics point of view. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to we want to lend the money, we want to work with a developer, but ultimately, as, as both Paul and Bradley have said, there's an economic end to this, and it's about the saleability. Um, so we want to make sure that if it, if it is slightly daring, does it fit within the sort of ethos of, of the area where it's situated? So when you look at, um, you look at things over the future, like have houses, those type of designs, you know, you certainly don't necessarily want to be developing a number of those in a, in a nice, historic Victorian street. You want to be developing those or, or funding those in an area where you think actually the buyers will appreciate them. And then from a from a risk perspective, when we're lending, obviously we can go down the risk curve in terms of the type of people we're dealing with, in terms of LTV lending, etc. So there is there's always a way to to structure it. But I think ultimately, going back to your original point, yeah, there is a sort of an initial question mark over you know who is actually going to buy these? Is there is there going to be sufficient demand out there for the for the product? And do you think, Bradley, we almost need a, a sort of new glossary of terms, as it were? You know, we talk net zero, we talk MMC, carbon emissions, whatever. But I mean, the general public, do they actually know what that means in the, in the context of a, of a new home? I mean, wouldn't it be great, presumably, if someone came and looked around your show home and the first question they asked, rather than how much, was, is it, is it net zero, for example, rather than uh, can I get it through help to buy, what are the features, etc.? Do you think we need to change that mindset? Um, that again, it's it's about education. It is about education, and I think there's there's two aspects. One, I think at the moment the the consumer is becoming increasingly aware of running costs. So from from their point of view, you know, if you are able to sell a property on the basis that it is low energy and it will save them money, they buy into that. What they don't look at is the lifetime environmental cost of the, of the property they're not interested in that at all very similar to cars you know people people are happy to look at electric cars because the running cost is i don't know a third of of running a, a, a petrol car whether they're prepared to then start asking questions about the environment impact of making the batteries or not i personally i don't think they are interested in that um it is it's purely and simply what's their day-to-day cost and I think that's the same with homes. I think, as I say, it's for the it's for the industry and for regulation to to start looking at the lifetime cost of a home in environmental terms. And Paul, again, that that comes back to design and the fact as SMEs you are by definition developing on your doorstep. So it's very important to keep the standards high. Where perhaps with the mainstream builders, it's more duck in and duck out. I suppose it leads on to the the whole neighbourhood, the whole environment, isn't it? We're talking about the bricks and mortar in the most eco sense but is there a wider community aspect to all this but maybe we're overlooking yeah absolutely and one of our fundamental principles we've always had in terms of design is that we we want to for the rest of that building's life be able to drive by and be proud of it you know there's a lot of buildings you can't say that about and we've always really focused on what our buildings look like obviously what's inside of them and the energy strategy and all of that is really really important as well and we've really been doubling down on that 
absolutely. Another one of our stakeholders is our neighbours and our neighbourhoods we're part of. Um, so we we became a B Corps last year, which was really exciting for us and we were really proud. We now have to have regard to neighbourhoods, planets, our, our people and our customers. And that, that makes perfect sense for any business. So we've always been really focused on our neighbourhoods. And there's a, there's a concept uh, called 20-minute neighbourhoods at the moment. I live in effectively one of those at the moment. I live near Richmond. At the weekends, I only ever use my bike. I can get get everywhere on my bike and do what I need to do with my kids. We recently got our largest ever uh, planning consent through last month in Gravesend for 1,500 homes. Uh, And we very much modelled that on this concept of sustainable transport, all of the uses people need on their doorstep. And also this, um, this concept of get to know your neighbours, you know, community. I mean, that's been so important to all of us during the lockdowns we've had. And I feel very lucky with my community. I know everyone in my road. I, you know, the ones I didn't, I certainly met during lockdown and that, that made it much easier. So we are, you know, we were, we were really focused. And when you look around the world where this concept came from, these, these places are nicer to live. And that translates to all sorts of benefits for, for customers. Um, so, yeah, we, we're really focused on that. And we consider it one of our one of our stakeholders as a business. And Paul, you've mentioned B Corp already. Can you, in very basic terms, tell us what that certification means? Yeah, as a business, we uh, we have what's called our Live Well Manifesto, which is what we are doing for our biggest stakeholders, which is planet, customers, company, and people, and the environment. This was always really important to us as a business. So. We'd read about B Corp, really admired companies that are B Corps like Patagonia. In fact, we give um, Yvonne Chauvinard's book to all of our new staff when they join. So it had always been on our agenda and we applied last year and was really proud to get accepted. So it was a sign that we're doing really well on all of those stakeholders, with all of those stakeholders. And for us, it was a way of us enshrining it into the business because as part of the process, you have to change your company member and arts. So we now have a legal requirement to consider those stakeholders in all of our decisions. So when that comes to the planet, we build houses. So we need to do the best we possibly can. And that's why, you know, we're saying we want to build homes for a better world because we've got to. There's no second option of this. You know, the, the planet's not going to survive otherwise. So, and another important thing was it's, it's somebody external holding us to account because we need to recertify every three years very publicly we need to report uh, via an impact reports each year. So it's it's very publicly reporting back and holding us to account on how we're doing. So we, we felt that was really important to us, our staff and all of our other stakeholders. And Dan, I, I keep asking yourself whether you're conflicted. Uh, this, I'm afraid, is another, are you conflicted? Um, because your your primary role, your, your, your lending, your funding developments, are there, are there sometimes schemes that land on your desk where you say, this is this is an absolute surefire winner, but I'm not very happy with such and such. Uh, the ethos, potentially, the philosophy. Maybe it's around sustainability, but commercially, it's an absolute winner. I don't think we necessarily go into that much detail. I mean, it's it's good to see that someone is considering sort of the environmental impact, and you know, they're they're meeting uh, the requirements from from planning, from government, etc. And I think we all need to be thinking about. The future and and what our planet's going to look like in the next sort of 10 to, to, to 50 years i mean ultimately when we're making a decision around a lending application you know if there's something that reputationally causes us an issue 
then then we would clearly stand back. But I think I think we have to leave the quality of the people we're dealing with to control the way they're going to push their developments forward and the, and the way they're going to act um, in terms of um, their, their their own reputation. I suppose in an ideal world, you wouldn't lend unless it very much delivered environmentally, would you? Planners simply wouldn't give planning. All those things have to come into play, don't they? Yeah, I think that's without doubt. And um, we can now look forward to, you know, you've got you've potentially got green mortgages coming forward. So that's another area where actually it can sort of meet the chain, if you like. So touching your point, if everyone sort of fits in, in into that sort of loop and, and it all joins the dots, then, then we can obviously see a, a quicker change. But again, I think only time will tell to see whether the sort of green mortgages side of things will work. And, and obviously that will promote developers such as uh, Bradley and Paul to sort of push their ethos forward. Um, it obviously gives us confidence as a bank and as a lender, knowing that if people hit, hit these sort of environmental regulations and, and requirements, that there are mortgages out there for people to buy. And again, that will drive demand. So it all, it, it all fits in together without doubt. And Bradley, there'll always obviously be bumps in the road ahead, but overall, are you are you excited by the house building of tomorrow? I mean, with a fair wind and with everything in place, what can be achieved? I mean, it's quite an exciting time right now, isn't it? Oh yeah, I love it. I love innovation. I love innovation. So yeah, in, in that sense, it is exciting. Um, it's challenging too. I mean, you know, one, one of the issues we face as, as house builders is that, you know, we are always looking to bring a product to market in two, three, four years' time. And knowing what the environment is going to be like in two, three, four years' time is a really difficult job. So, yeah, it's, it's exciting and, and challenging at the same time. Likewise, Paul, your crystal ball, your, I mean, your title, after all, says it all, doesn't it? Chief Innovation Officer. That's, that's a great title, by the way. That means you have to do what it says on the tin, on your business card, effectively. I'm really, really excited about what you know the next period. Um, I think that we can be a huge part of the solution. I think that we can get to net zero. We can offset lots of carbon. We can make homes balance the grid, store energy, use them effectively as batteries. And you know, there's lots of exciting things and, and do all of this while increasing supply. Because obviously, you know, there's more and more demand. So really exciting. I think we can, uh, I think we look back and there'll be more change in the next 10 years than there's been in the last 100 or so years in our industry. And I'm, you know, I'm really excited to be leading a company that's pushing, pushing that forwards. Right. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Um, I think very much on a high. There are huge challenges ahead, obviously, but it's, it's massively exciting. Um, and it's led by the likes of Gold Developments and Joseph Holmes, producing fantastic homes and products. And of course, the likes of Close Brothers Property Finance, who are helping the house builders on their journey. I'm really, really excited by the future. Um, so all it remains is for me to say a huge thank you to Dan, Paul and Bradley uh, for taking part in episode one of our new podcast series. And once again, thank you so much to Close Brothers Property Finance and a self-thank you to Show House magazine. And we look forward to moving on to episode two very shortly. Thank you. <laughs>